Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. A20, the answer. It's a fact. If the riches of the wealthy were suddenly given to the average American, the rich would have most of their wealth back in no time at all. Not because they're more deserved, but because they do a great job of getting us to spend it back to them. And once in their hands, they work it to their self-interest. The host of Get Rich Slow, Jim McAleese, believes the financial decisions you make today will guide your financial destiny tomorrow. Jim teaches you to plan for the worst and then hope for the best. America is under no obligation to provide what you need. Entitlements are out. Opportunity is today's watchword. Money matters can be intimidating, but they don't have to be. So start or supercharge your wealth-building plan now with Jim McAleese. Good morning and welcome to Get Rich Slow. This is your money school for financial winners. Here we explore strategies to help you prosper. We look at the big picture and then develop plans to guide our families to meet their financial goals. Get Rich Slow gives you solid financial strategies that will help you improve your financial life. If you want the truth, not the hype, please join us for the next hour for Get Rich Slow. I'm Jim McAleese, certified financial planner and president of Cornerstone Consultants Incorporated, where securities and investment advisory services are offered through Next Financial Group, which is a member of FINRA and CIVIC. Cornerstone Consultants is not an affiliate of Next Financial Group. Well, for those of you who have tuned in fashionably late, you're listening to Get Rich Slow this morning. I'm Jim McAleese, your weekend financial planner. We're going to be here for the next hour to help you improve your bottom line. Today is a special edition of Get Rich Slow. Although we are not live in the studio this morning, Colleen, our beautiful producer, has compiled some common questions asked by callers, clients, and folks just like you. Throughout the show, we'll be addressing these questions, so now stay tuned for more of Get Rich Slow.
Is it considered legal to use a required minimum distribution from your IRA to pay your annual church dues? I know someone who says she does this every year, but I'm wondering if it's really okay in the eyes of the law. Yes, Colleen, that's uh, perfectly legal. At a certain age, every IRA owner is required to take required minimum distributions. Those are called RMDs from their retirement accounts. So if you reach the age of uh, 70 and a half in uh, 2019, you had to take your first required minimum distribution by April 1st of 2020. Because of the SECURE Act, though, which was passed recently, the Act of uh, 2019, if you reach the age of 70 and a half in 2020 or later, you have to take your first required minimum distribution by April 1st of the year after you reach age 72. However, uh, there's more to it. However, as a result of the CARES Act, required minimum distributions were suspended for 2020. So if you wish to make a contribution to a charitable organization and you're over the age of 70 and a half, you can direct that a distribution from your IRA be made directly to the charitable organization. That distribution will be used to satisfy your required minimum distribution dollar per dollar. That's called a Qualified Charitable Distribution, QCD. This will result in that share of the required minimum distribution not being considered taxable income to you. A Qualified Charitable Distribution is not added to your income, so you still have the same standard deduction, but now your taxable income is less. That means that you effectively get the equivalent of the standard deduction and a charitable distribution as the income is not included on your return. Your friend is using her qualified charitable distribution to pay her church dues. Now, should this qualify as a charitable contribution if she is getting something in return? Normally, when you receive something in return from a charitable contribution, you can't deduct the full amount of your deduction. The deduction must be reduced by the value of the benefit received. But the federal tax law exempts intangible religious benefits, such as admission to worship services, as a benefit received in return that would reduce the value of the contribution. So your friend would be entitled to use a qualified charitable distribution to satisfy her dues as well as her required minimum distribution. So... It's okay. I can see Colleen has another question for us, and let's go to Colleen. When our two girls start college, what education tax credits or deductions might we be eligible to claim? Oh, that's a, that's a complex question. And let's say if you have two youngsters in college at the same time, the, the, the family generally has to tighten their belts until the kids get out of college. Uh, these are the macaroni and cheese days. Generally, that's true, even if we use every benefit available. All of this uh, starts with a uh, free application for federal student aid or the FAFSA, F-A-F-S-A form for financial aid. These results are sent to the College Financial Aid Department, 
uh, where hopefully the college can provide a package of scholarships, grants, and loans. The grants are given on a needs basis, and most of the time, uh, as luck would have it, you're going to be above the line uh, that will get you any grants at all. Then the principal part of the financial aid package will be loans, and loans for both the children as well as the parents. In any case, <clears throat> there are some federal tax deductions and credits that will be helpful. Let's talk about the deductions first. The college tuition and fees deduction is an above-the-line, quote-unquote, deduction, which means that you don't have to itemize to claim it. The deduction allows you to deduct up to $4,000 from your income for qualifying tuition expenses and mandatory enrollment fees. In order to attend an accredited institution after high school, the students must be enrolled at least half-time in a program leading to a degree or a certificate or other recognized uh, educational credential for at least one academic period. Uh, it is a per-return deduction. The tuition and fee deductions are worth up to $4,000, dependent upon your modified adjusted gross income. The tuition and fee deduction expires after the 2020 tax year, although it's, it, would, it is generally extended, but as far as uh, legally and officially, it ends in the 2020 tax period. It's been extended several times before. Note that you cannot double dip and claim a deduction on the same expenses that you claim the credit for. A tax credit subtracts the amount of taxes you owe, while a deduction subtracts your taxable income. If you're responsible for payments on a student loan, there is the limited student loan interest deduction. Most of the time, personal interest you pay isn't deductible on your tax return. However, you may be allowed a special deduction for paying interest on a student loan used for higher education. The student loan interest deduction is claimed as an adjustment to income, so you can claim it on your tax return even if you don't itemize. It is a per-return deduction, not per child. However, you can only deduct up to $2,500 of student loan interest paid each year. That amount is gradually reduced to zero if your modified gross income is between seventy dollars and $85,000. The deduction is dependent upon your modified adjusted gross income. It is gradually a reduced deduction with maximum income limits. The loan must be taken out solely to pay qualified education expenses for you, your spouse, or a person who was your dependent when you took out the loan. Qualified expenses include amounts paid for tuition and fees, room and board, books, supplies and equipment, and other expenses such as transportation. You must be legally obliged uh, to repay the loan and uh, not a dependent on someone else's return to be eligible to take the deduction. Now, credits are more beneficial than deductions because they mean a dollar-for-dollar reduction in taxes. The first credit is the American Opportunity tax credit, this maximum annual credit is $2,500. 
This credit is only allowed for four, the first four years of post-secondary education. A student must carry at least a half-time course load for a minimum of one semester. Additionally, the student must be enrolled in a program which leads to an associate or a bachelor's degree or some other recognized credential. It covers tuition and expenses, but not room and board. The next limit is the lifetime learning credit, which is the maximum annual credit of $2,000 uh, per return. And the lifetime learning credit can help with undergraduate costs for a student who is carrying a limited course load or who already has four years of college credit. Also, the lifetime learning credit will, will help cover the cost of graduate school or professional degrees or courses taken to acquire or improve job skills. It is available for an unlimited number of years. You can claim the lifetime learning credit for qualified education expenses for a dependent child as well as for yourself or for your spouse. However, the maximum amount of covered expenses is $10,000, no matter how many students are in the family. This translates into the $2,000 maximum credit, which is uh, $10,000 uh, times 20%. Uh, qualified expenses, including tuition and mandatory fees and expenses, optional fees and room and board do not qualify. Warning is that you can't claim both the American Opportunity Credit and the Lifetime Learning Credit for the same student in the same year. However, you can potentially claim the American Opportunity Credit for one or more students and the Lifetime Credit for up to $10,000 of qualified expenses for other students in the family. There's a lot of IRS rules, so the best thing to do is to talk to your accountant or tax preparer about your particular situation. Every case is different, and your accountant, you and your accountant, will have to decide how to apply the deductions and how to apply the tax credits because uh, you can't be double dipping, and the benefits phase out over certain income limits. So you may need help in order to determine what is available to you in order to be able to use the deductions and credits to maximum advantage. You're listening to Get Rich Slow, and this is Jim McAleese, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Jim, a lot of our listeners have this question. They have a winter home down in Florida, and they use it for themselves, obviously, during the colder months. But if they were to rent it out occasionally to offset expenses, what would some of the IRS rules be for them to rent out their home? This can be a, a simple question, depending upon what you're using the house for in Florida, but it could be a complex question, too. The IRS allows most owners to lower taxable income by taking tax deductions for vacation homes. 
What's deductible depends upon a number of factors, especially how often you visit and whether you allow renters. If you bought your vacation home exclusively for personal enjoyment, you can generally deduct your mortgage interest and real estate taxes just as you would on a primary residence. Now you, what you do is use Schedule A to take the deductions. The IRS even allows you to rent out your vacation home for up to 14 days a year without paying taxes on the rental income. How great is that, huh? You might be able to deduct uninsured casualty losses too, though you may not be able to write off rental-related expenses. If the house is rented for more than 14 days, then you must claim the income and things becoming a little bit more complex. Now, if you own what you consider a vacation home but never visit it and only rent it out, other tax rules apply. Without personal use, the house is considered an investment or a rental property by the IRS. Time spent checking in on a house or making repairs doesn't count as personal use. As an exclusive rental property, you can deduct numerous expenses, including taxes, insurance, mortgage interest, utilities, housekeeping, and repairs. Even towels and sheets are deductible. What you do is use Schedule E. You can also write off depreciation. The value lost due to the wear and tear a home experiences over time. You need to treat the rental property as a business. You have to keep detailed records, maintain a separate checking account, figure that you will spend a couple hours a week on average over the course of the year managing the property. To maximize deductions, you need to be actively involved in the rental property. What does actively involved mean? That means performing such duties as approving new tenants and coming up with rental terms. And you also need to own at least 10% of the property in case you're part of a larger group there. What you do is see the IRS publication number 527 for details and consult with your qualified tax advisor before taking any action. If your modified adjusted gross income, which is the same as a really adjusted gross income for most people, is below $100,000, you can deduct as much as $25,000 for rental losses. That is, the difference between your rental receipts and your rental expenses. The deduction generally phases out between a modified adjusted gross income of $100,000 and $150,000. You can carry forward excess losses to future years or offset losses to other gains when you sell. The tax picture gets a little bit more complicated when in the same year you make personal use of your vacation home and you rent it out for more than 14 days. Remember, Rental income is tax-free only if you rent for 14 days or fewer. The key to maximizing deductions is keeping annual personal use of your vacation home to fewer than 15 days or 10% of the total rental days, whichever is greater. In that case, the vacation home can be treated as a rental, meaning that you get the same generous deductions. Now, to avoid going over the 10% limit, Essentially, you should not use a uh, vacation home for more than one day for every 10 days you rent it. Make personal use of your vacation home for 
more than 14 days or more than 10% of the total rental days, however, and your deductions may be limited. For example, your rental receipts are less than your rental expenses. Well, you can't offset the loss against other income sources such as salaries and pensions. There's a worksheet in that uh, IRS publication 527 that can help you determine which expenses you can carry over to the following year. Another big blow, the IRS requires you to divide expenses between personal use and rental use. Let's say you have a vacation home you're personally using for, let's say, 25 days, and you rent it for 75 days. That's 100 days total use, and now you can only write off 75% of the expenses as rental expenses. 75 rental days divided by 100 total days, and that adds up to 75%. Some of the personal expenses, such as mortgage interests and real estate taxes, may be deductible on that Schedule A that we talked about before. Tax deductions for vacation homes are complex, so make sure that you consult a tax advisor and make sure that you get the right information, otherwise you'll be in trouble with that. So this is Jim McAleese, and you're listening to Get Rich Slow. We'll be right back. One, two, three, four, goodness sake. If a husband is 62 years old and considering claiming his Social Security early, and if he does, will this lower his wife's benefits also? Ah, good question. As you know, claiming Social Security before your full retirement age, which is generally about uh, 66, will lower your benefits permanently. Social Security reduces your benefits uh, using the early retirement uh, penalty so that you'll receive the same amount between now and the a- your average life expectancy, whether you claim at age 66 or get the standard amount and, 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 a- and get the standard amount. At age 62, you get a smaller amount or 70, you get an increased amount. That said, if you claim benefits early, and you live past a certain age called your break-even point, you'll wind up collecting less in total lifetime benefits than if you had waited to claim them at full retirement age. Now, to answer your question, if we if you claim your Social Security retirement benefits early, uh, this will not affect your wife's uh, dependent uh, benefits, which is also called the spousal retirement benefits as long as your wife waits until her full retirement age to claim her spousal benefits. She can collect the full amount because dependent benefits are based upon your primary insurance amount, which is based upon your earnings record at your uh, full retirement age. Whether or not you claim benefits early doesn't affect the amount of dependent benefits your spouse can claim. 
Uh, spousal retirement benefits are half of your primary insurance amount. That is half of what you would have received if you had waited until full retirement age to claim benefits. However, if your wife claims the spousal retirement benefits before her full retirement age, her spousal benefits will be lowered permanently. Uh, survivor's benefits are handled differently. If you claim retirement benefits early, this will lower your wife's survivor benefits, also called the widow's benefits or deceased husband's benefits, should you die before her. That is because at your death, your wife will be able to collect the same amount you are entitled to before you died. If your retirement benefits are lowered because of early retirement uh, deductions or increased because of delayed retirement up to age 70, your wife's survivor benefits will be similarly increased or decreased. Also, if your wife were to collect the survivor's benefits before she reaches full retirement age, any time from 60 to 65, her survivor benefits would be decreased. So, if you collect retirement benefits early, and then your wife collected her survivor benefits early, uh, she would only get a small portion of your full retirement age benefits. There's an exception to this if your wife is caring for your dependent, minor, or disabled children. In that situation, she would not get an early retirement penalty regardless of the age she claimed. This is this is claimed as the mother's benefit. So I hope that answers your question. This is Jim McAleese. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Colleen, producer of Get Rich Slow. Each week we take calls from people just like you that have questions for our host, Jim McAleese. Oftentimes, Jim can't answer the questions in depth because of time restraints or the need for more detailed information. That's why we encourage you to call Cornerstone Consultants, Inc., the financial counseling service founded by Jim and Tama McAleese. Cornerstone Consultants, Inc. has helped thousands of clients get more for their money. Whether your financial goal is to avoid common investing mistakes, buying your next home, planning for retirement, finding that right mutual fund, or covering your assets with the right kind of insurance, Cornerstone Consultants, Inc. will guide you to wise financial choices. So call Cornerstone Consultants, Inc. for an appointment today at 440-647-2793. That number again, 440-647-2793. Now back to more Get Rich Slow. If a wife does not work outside the home, Jim, under what circumstances is she eligible for a deductible IRA? That's a wonderful question because the the answers will be surprising to you in a good way. 
with retirement coming, it is necessary for a couple to utilize their IRA opportunities as much as possible, even if only one of them works outside the home. For example, a non-working spouse may qualify to make a deductible IRA contribution of up to $6,000 for 2020, the year 2020. That changes to $7,000 if age 50 or older. The key to qualifying for the couple is to file a joint return and have enough earned income to cover the contribution. However, the deductibility of the uh, non-working spouse's contribution is phased out for couples with adjusted gross income between $104,000 and $124,000 for 2020, provided that the working couple is covered by a qualified retirement plan. Now, for the working spouse, their ability to make a deductible contribution is phased out between an adjusted gross income of between 104000 and 124000 Let's take an example. Say a married couple has an adjusted gross income of $125,000. If the wage-earning spouse is covered by a retirement plan at work, the other spouse can make a $6,000 deductible IRA contribution because their joint adjusted gross income is less than the $196,000 threshold for the phase-out rule. But the wage-earning spouse cannot make a deductible contribution because their joint adjusted gross income exceeds the $124,000 of the phase-out rule. A point to remember is that neither spouse participates in a qualified uh, retirement plan. In that case, both spouses can make a deductible contribution of up to $6,000 each, regardless of their adjusted gross income. Now, if both spouses work and both participate in a qualified retirement plan, then the phase-out rule of $104,000 and $124,000 applies to both spouses. Another possibility is if both spouses work, but only one is a participant in a qualified retirement plan. In that case, for the participant in a qualified retirement plan, their ability to make a deductible contribution is limited by the 104000 to 124000 phase-out range. But the non-participating spouse is covered by the much more liberal 196000 to 206000 phase-out range. If this sounds complicated, it is. it does sound complicated because it is. With that in mind, the information we provide in answering your questions is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax advisor. You should consult your tax professional to help answer questions about specific situations or needs prior to taking any action because that way they'll know all the details and they can make their recommendation based upon all the information. We believe the information provided is reliable, but don't guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness. This is Jim Agnes. You're listening to Get Rich Slow, so stay tuned for more. We'll be right back. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my 
need to take required minimum distributions? That's an excellent question. Required minimum distributions refer to distributions from the retirement accounts. For example, in the case of an IRA, whether it's a traditional IRA, one that you've been contributing to over the last 20 years, where the uh, allowable contributions this year are $6,000 if you're less than age 50, and you can add another $1,000 if you're age 50 or older, or it could be a SEP IRA or a simple IRA or a rollover IRA where you have rolled over your company retirement lump sum into an IRA. The RMD date for distribution of the first year is April 1st of the year after you turn 70 and a half, traditionally. But under the new SECURE Act, if your 70th birthday was July 1st, 2019 or later, you do not have to take uh, withdrawals until you reach age 72, even if you're not retired yet. This includes the year that you make your first required minimum distribution. You would then be taking two required minimum distributions that first year. For each year afterwards, you must take your required minimum distribution by December 31st. In the case of a Roth IRA, You don't have to worry about the required minimum distributions. In another case, for the 403B accounts, the rules are the same as for your IRA with one exception. If you are still working at age 72 and have a 403B with your current employer, you may be able to delay distributions from your account until April 1st of the year after you retire. Required minimum distributions for any other 403B accounts you have must begin by April 1st of the year after you turn 72. If you have any assets in an employer-sponsored retirement plan and are still working for the employer at age age 72, you may be able to delay distributions from these employer plan accounts until April 1st of the year after you retire. So if you own the business, though, then different tax rules apply, and basically then you should consult your... uh, uh, tax advisor. So this is Jim McAleese and you're listening to Get Rich Slow. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Wishing and hoping and thinking and praying, planning and dreaming each night of his charms that won't get to Let's see if Colleen has another question for us. Jim, I do. My Social Security benefits are reduced because I have a government pension, and that's not fair. What's this all about? Well, there is a fairness to it. You just have to understand where the government is coming from. A while ago, a retired caller who had worked for the government, uh, county government, was receiving an Ohio uh, pension employee's retirement system pension. He called to ask about the reductions in his Social Security benefits. Previously, he had worked in the steel mills for more than 10 years and was fully insured regarding uh, Social Security. 
he had more than 40 quarters before he began working for the county. The bottom line of his predicament was that his Social Security benefits were reduced by about $443 each month because of his government pension. It didn't seem fair, and he wasn't happy. That reduction of Social Security benefits is due to the windfall elimination provision, quote, unquote, and that's a part of the Social Security rules. And the windfall elimination provision affects how the amount of your retirement or your disability benefit is calculated if you receive a pension from work where Social Security taxes were not taken out of your pay. That is, if you receive a pension from STRS, OPERS, OPERS, Ohio Police and Firemen Pension, Ohio State Trooper Pension, or a Civil Service Retirement System Pension from the federal government. For these cases, there are special rules. In that case, a modified formula is used to calculate your benefit amount, resulting in a lower Social Security benefit than you ordinarily would receive. The rationale for this reduction in benefits is that the formula for calculating Social Security benefits is biased towards the lower-paid workers. For example, lower-paid workers could get a Social Security benefit that equals about 55% of their pre-retirement earnings, while highly-paid workers get a Social Security benefit that equals about 25% of their pre-retirement earnings. Before 1983, the people who worked mainly in a job not covered by Social Security had their Social Security benefits calculated as if they were long-term, low-wage earners. Then they had the advantage of receiving a Social Security benefit representing a higher percentage of the earnings plus a pension from a job where they did not pay Social Security taxes. Congress passed the, quote, windfall elimination provision, unquote, to remove that advantage. For example, if I were a policeman that worked for a local city government and did not pay Social Security taxes, but I did pay an even greater percent of my pay into the Ohio Police and Firemen's Pension Plan, and in addition, I worked part-time as a security guard for a private company and paid Social Security tax on my part-time wages, then when I retired at age 62, my part-time wages reported to Social Security would make me look like a low-paid worker entitled to a higher percentage of my average index monthly earnings, or AIME. Here is how the windfall, the quote, windfall elimination provision, unquote, works. Social Security benefits are based upon the worker's average monthly earnings adjusted for inflation and averaged over the highest 35 years. This is called the AIM, which is the averaged index monthly earnings. The Social Security Administration separates the AIM into three amounts and multiplies each amount by a separate factor. For example, for a worker who retired at age 62 in 2020, the first $960 of the AIM is multiplied by 90%, and then earnings, the rest of the earnings between $960 and $5,785 are multiplied by 32%, and then if there's anything left, it's multiplied by 15%. 
These three numbers are added to give you your primary insurance amount, or PIA, which is your monthly Social Security amount at full retirement age, generally at age 66 today or 66 in several months. The, quote, windfall elimination provision, unquote, reduces the 90% factor to 40%, thus reducing your PIA by 50% on the first $960 or $480. So that's the amount that you're not going to see in your Social Security benefit. The rest of the PIA formula remains as before, and the $480 a month reduction uh, that it represents a $5,760 a year reduction in your Social Security benefits. Also be warned that the projected Social Security benefits that you get online or you use to get mailed to you each year don't have that reduction in account. The system doesn't know that you will be getting a government pension. In addition, there are exceptions to the rule For example, the 90% factor applies to the first $960 is only reduced if you have 30 or more years of substantial earnings in a job where you paid Social Security taxes. The Social Security regulations go on to define what is substantial earnings and show that if you have less than 30 but greater than 20 years of substantial earnings, you can move that 40% uh, factor uh, closer to the 90% factor. There are a lot of details and rules. In any case, the best approach is to arrange a meeting at your local Social Security office to go over the details of your specific case. Then you'll be talking to an expert who has all your work records on a computer screen in front of them and uh, They'll be able to help you uh, with any questions you have. And also be sure that after you've met with them, to make sure you have your their name and their telephone number so that you can phone them if you have any questions. It's a usual case of you getting out of the meeting and then ending up with more questions. So get the name and the uh, phone number. So uh, this is Jim McAleese, and you're listening to Get Rich Slow. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. As roses in the morning, you to me are soft as summer rain and don't in love with shade. That's something rare. The sidewalks in the street, the concrete and the clay beneath my feet begins to crumble. But love will never die because we'll see the mountains tumble before we say goodbye, my love and I. Uh, what happens when a non-spouse beneficiary inherits an IRA? I understand that you have 10 years to take out all the money. Is it true that you can wait until year 10 to take the money out? Yes, that's the change that's been made in the SECURE Act, which became law in December of, what was it, 2019. That made major changes to the rules governing retirement accounts and especially for non-spousal beneficiaries who inherit these accounts. Among these major changes is increasing the age at which required minimum distributions 
uh, commonly called RMDs, must begin from age 70 and a half to 72. So it used to be 70 and a half. Now, after the SECURE Act, it's 72. That's the required start. And also allowing traditional IRA contributions to be made at any age. They used to have to stop at 70 and a half. Now they can go forever. The biggest change, however, affects people who inherited retirement accounts, such as IRAs and 401ks, from someone who is not their spouse. Let's say your children or your cousins or something. The law eliminated the so-called stretch IRA for new beneficiaries and replaced it with a new 10-year rule. Under the old rule, a non-spouse beneficiary who inherited a retirement account could stretch out the required minimum distributions over his or her remaining lifetime. In other words, you could stretch it out over, let's say, stretch it out till age 85 or 90. But that changed. This allowed the beneficiary to take advantage of tax-deferred growth in their retirement accounts for many years. The average is generally 27 years, well past the lifetime of the original account owner. But those things changed under the new rules. Most non-spouse beneficiaries referred to as, quote, non-eligible designated beneficiaries, unquote, must withdraw all funds in the inherited retirement account by the end of the 10th year after the original account owner's year of death. The new rule does not require annual distributions or any distributions at all within the 10-year period. Thus, a non-spouse beneficiary uh, can choose to wait until the 10th year has passed or they can take distributions of any amount in any year along the way, whether to meet income needs or to reduce overall taxes. For example, assume that somebody inherits a traditional IRA account worth $100,000 from the deceased who died May 1st, 2020. The 10-year rule, the 10-year clock begins January 1st, 2021, which is the year after the year of the deceased death. The beneficiary must withdraw the balance of the inherited IRA account no later than December 31st of 2030, the end of the 10th year. Until then, the beneficiary is not required to withdraw any of the money, which continues to grow tax-deferred. But on the other hand, the beneficiary could also make withdrawals of any amount at any time during these 10 years. But even though it is not required to take annual distributions, the beneficiary might want to spread them out to avoid having a large bump in their taxable income in 2030, which would push them into a higher tax bracket. A significantly higher income in a year could also affect the beneficiary's eligibility for other tax credits and benefits or even increase their Medicare premiums or the taxable amount of their Social Security benefits, depending upon their age at that point. So, effectively, the new law eliminates the ability to stretch out the distribution over a lifetime. At the same time, within the 10-year window, it gives more flexibility to control the timing of their uh, income than they had under the old rules. It's important to note that surviving spouses are not affected by this 10-year rule. 
they can stretch out distributions from a retirement account inherited from the decedent spouse over their own lifetimes or roll the inherited IRA into their own IRA. The law also carves out a few exceptions to the rule for certain non-spouse beneficiaries. These include disabled individuals, chronically ill people, and individuals who are not more than 10 years younger than the decedent. Now, for these beneficiaries, the old stretch rules continue to apply. In addition, there's also a special rule that applies to minor children of the decedent. A minor child who inherits a retirement account from a parent must begin taking the required minimum distribution over the child's lifetime, but only until the child reaches the age of majority. At that point, the 10-year rule applies. Does it sound complex? Yes, it is. But when you talk to your financial advisor or you're the custodian of your IRA account, they'll give you some good advice. So this is Jim McAleese. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you ever leave me, I'll be sad and blue. Don't you ever leave me. I'm so in love with you. The birds in the sky would be sad and lonely if they knew that I lost my one and only baby sad. If you're back to me, the leaves on the trees would be softly sighing if they heard from the breeze that you left me crying, they'd be sad. Security, Jim, what can you expect to find in the way of spousal benefits? It's a good deal. Spousal benefits are a wonderful deal. To make the most of your spousal benefit, uh, Social Security benefit, uh, it's helpful to be aware of the amount that you might be eligible for as well as the timing of your claim. It can impact how much you receive. If you have a work history, you'll receive either uh, your benefit Uh, based upon your work history or a spousal benefit, whichever is greater. For you to be eligible for spousal benefits, your working spouse will need to have already claimed their benefits. In other words, you also need to be at least 62 years old and be married for at least one year before applying for spousal benefits. If you are divorced, you must have been in the marriage for that lasted at least 10 years and be currently unmarried as well as at least 62 years old. Notice that if you're married and your spouse, uh, your spouse has to take, uh, has to be drawing social security benefits before you can draw your spousal benefits. But if you're divorced then that doesn't apply. Uh, you can draw your spousal benefits and uh, your ex could still be working. But there's an exception. If you've been divorced less than two years, you can't claim spousal benefits unless your ex is drawing benefits. If you have been divorced for at least two years, you can apply on the spouse's record even if he is sh- he or she is not collecting benefits. In case of, in case of uh, multiple marriages and divorces, you can choose to receive 
whichever spousal benefit is highest, providing the other requirements are met. Your spousal benefit will be 50% of the major wage spouse benefits at at their full retirement age. Full retirement age is when you are eligible to receive your full benefits. In 2020, the full retirement age is generally around 66 and is gradually rising to 67. For example, if you are married and your spouse begins collecting $2,000 per month at full retirement age, your spousal benefit will be $1,000 if you start payments at your full retirement age. That's basically $3,000 for the couple. If you decide to begin collecting spousal benefits before your full retirement age, you can expect to receive a lower amount. Filing early reduces your income forever. To make the most of your spousal benefit, uh, you'll want to wait until you reach your full retirement age, that's 66 or 66 in some months, before beginning to receive Social Security benefits. In planning, you should compare the benefits you may be eligible for, such as your own personal Social Security benefits uh, from your work record or your spousal benefits. In some cases, you may be eligible to receive spousal benefits early without reductions. Uh, These are instances where spouses can receive spousal benefits prior to age 62, which is also referred to as uh, child-in-care spousal benefits. You will still need to be married for at least one year before applying for benefits. You'll also have to be caring for a child who is under age 16 or disabled and who is also receiving uh, Social Security benefits based upon the work record of your spouse. The major wage-earning spouse also needs to have filed for his or her own benefits. Spousal benefits differ from your, from your personal benefits when it comes to delaying payments. If you delay personal uh, benefits past, age retire, past uh, retirement age, you can take it up to age 70. The benefit increases over time. However, spousal benefits max out at uh, full retirement age. Thus, there is no benefit in delaying your spousal benefit claim past your full retirement age. The rules are different for survivor benefits. A widow or widower whose spouse waited until age uh, 70 to file for Social Security is entitled to the full amount the deceased was getting, including the delayed retirement credits, so long as the surviving spouse has reached full retirement age. So I hope that answers your question with regard to the spousal benefits. This is Jim McAleese, and stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Get Rich Show. As we look at the beauty around us, our friends, our family, the children, the grandchildren, we have a lot to be thankful for as we grow old in age and wisdom. Maybe mostly age, but there's a list of things that 
when we are old, let's say it's 50 or over 60 or over 70, we should be happy that kidnappers are no longer very interested in us. And in a hostage situation, we're not, we are likely to be released first. Did you notice that no one expects you to run anywhere? When people call at 9 a.m. and ask, did I wake you? And people no longer view you as a hypochondriac. Besides, there is nothing left to learn the hard way, thank goodness. And things you buy now won't wear out. Besides, you can't eat supper at 4 p.m. And you can live without sex, but not without your glasses. Notice that you get into heated arguments about pension plans. And you no longer think about speed limits as a challenge. Besides, you quit trying to hold your stomach in, no matter who walks into the room. Now, sing along with the elevator music, and your eyes won't get that much worse. And your investments in health insurance are finally beginning to pay off. Now your joints are more accurate than meteorologists and the National Weather Service. And besides, your secrets are safe with your friends because they can't remember them either. And your supply of brain cells. The preceding program's views, claims, or representations may not reflect those of AM 14.